But yeah, well, hey, I'm, I'm excited that you're here. Uh, it is a good morning. Uh, the Lord's mercies are new for us each day and uh, excited to receive those with you this morning. And we're going to receive that together through the reading and the study of his words. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and find Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. As you're finding that, just as a point of record, I want to say thanks to Cameron Breedlove for teaching last week. If you were here, uh, you got a great message. Um, I was really encouraged and challenged by his really clear teaching on the work of Jesus to take two uh, kinds of people, two people groups, and to unite them together to redeem and to reconcile uh, Jews and Gentiles into one new man. As Gentiles, you learned this last week, that, that unless you're ethnically Jewish and have this heritage of being from the, the Near East, uh, you and I are Gentiles. And as Gentiles really far removed from the writing of the New Testament, I think we sometimes fail to see how earth-shaking this news would have been when it was written. Like, we, we live in a world where this is normal, and when the New Testament was written, when Paul's letter to the Ephesians was written, it was not. And today, Paul is going to give us some insight into the bombshell of the gospel that has implications for us even today. But I want us to, to, to think about how the original audience would have received this kind of news that Jews and Gentiles are now one new man in Christ. And so thinking about the fact that there are Jewish Christians in the room who had one idea about what it meant to be right with God. And you have these Jewish, I mean, Gentile Christians in the room who have this different view of what it might mean or what, maybe what they've been, been hearing their whole life of what it would take for them to be right with Yahweh. The word of the day is mystery. And so you see that on the screen. The title of the message is The Mystery Revealed. So we're going to think about the mystery all morning. But this word mystery is not being used by Paul the same way that you and I use the word mystery. When we think about the word mystery, we think Scooby-Doo, right? Like we think whodunit. We think if we would just look at the evidence of a problem that's in front of us, the mystery can be solved. So when we think of the word mystery, we think of like a fog, and if we would just look and look and look, the, the fog would lift and we would see the truth. We would see with clarity what's always there. And, and we have all that we need to solve the mystery, to solve the problem. But Paul's using the word mystery in a pretty specific way. Mystery here is not Scooby-Doo. <laughs> mystery here is a secret that has to be revealed. We don't uncover it. We would not, we could not figure it out. In fact, even angels are longing to look to see how this mystery is going to be revealed. And that's exactly what has to happen. God has to reveal the mystery. And this mystery of Christ, as we'll see, leads Paul to be a minister of that very mystery. So what I hope we'll glean from our passage this morning is that we, as the church, have also been given a ministry, a work that's rooted in this mystery of Christ. So let's read the first part of our text and dive into the mystery of 
Christ. You should have found Ephesians chapter 3 by now, so let's start in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written about briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Let's stop there and we'll pray. O Lord God, you are holy, holy, holy. You are high and lifted up. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your plans are high and lofty, and you do not need our counsel. You do not need our permission. You do not need our comprehension to do all that seems good to you. So, Lord, I pray that as we discover how you have revealed your plans in the person and work of Jesus Christ, help us to receive this truth, to have the mystery of Christ revealed before each one of us so that we might in turn be ministers who proclaim the revealed mystery of Christ to the world. For your glory and for our good, help us to understand your word, to know you so that we might love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul is talking about in these first verses, the mystery of Christ. You heard him use that word multiple times in this passage, the mystery, the mystery. Something I love about this passage, though, is that Paul writes and communicates like a human being. And you might think, well, of course, he's writing in words and writing a letter. That's how humans talk. But here, here's what I mean. Notice in verse 1, he, he begins to say something. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he digresses. He's like, oh, but I need to tell you this. <laughs> And so he digresses in verse 2 and cuts himself off all the way down through verse 13. So if you will just maybe flip the page or look across the page, look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He picks it back up in verse 14. So in verse 1, he's like, hey, for this reason, I, Paul, uh, ooh, hey, before I say that, let me say this. And then in verse 14, he goes, okay, now that I've said all that, for this reason, let me start over. And he begins to pray. Um, we just need to be reminded, that's not really like so much important for our message this morning, but it is important for us as we become good readers of the Bible to remember that these letters, these documents, this Bible that we have is a real thing. Like this isn't a work of fantasy that, that people just kind of put together. These are real documents written by real human authors and verse 1 just kind of alerts us to that. I think it's fun. But what does he tell the church? What, how, what is this digression? Well, Paul tells the church that he was given a stewardship of God's grace for them. So whatever God has given to Paul is for the sake of the church. And that stewardship is the mystery which was made known to him by revelation. See again, that Paul didn't figure this out. It's not something that Paul figured out on his own. He didn't solve a problem. It was shown to him. And if you know the story of Paul, you know this was, this was the truth. He's persecuting Christians because he totally missed the gospel. 
And no matter who he talked to, no matter what kind of learning he might have had, he did not have the equipment to see the truth of the gospel. It had to be revealed to him by God. So he's on the road to Damascus going to persecute more Christians. And the Lord Jesus stuns him and blinds him and throws him off his horse. To Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And through that series of events, his eyes that were once blind to the mystery begin to see. Paul doubles down on this in verses 4 and 5. Look again at those verses. Because when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed into his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In other words, he's saying, you can, you can listen to what I'm saying because I'm an apostle. And this mystery has been revealed to me. So now we see in this verse that the mystery is about Christ. Particularly, it's not just the mystery. It's the mystery of Christ. And this mystery was not made known in other generations. So you think about reading the Old Testament. And of course, there were those who had faith in the promised Messiah to come. They, they believed that God would be good to his promises. But they didn't understand the, the mystery. They, they didn't have the mystery revealed. It's why Jesus can say things like, Abraham longed to see my day. But he didn't see it. The mystery was not revealed to him. But now, Paul says, now this mystery has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, those who speak God's word to God's people in the time of the writing of the New Testament are revealing the mystery of Christ. Paul is saying some kind of seismic shift has taken place with Jesus. And the Spirit is the one who reveals it to those who would proclaim God's word to the world. Those would be the apostles and the prophets. So this means that up until Jesus comes to earth, up until Jesus steps into the story, something is hidden. Something is hidden and we cannot see it. Something was unseeable. Something was being prepared and fulfilled, but human eyes could not perceive it. You know, what is it? What is this mystery? What is the mystery of Christ? We'll look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is a massive verse. Massive. It may not look like a lot, so, so let's look at this statement together in some detail. First, Paul says that the mystery is that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are fellow heirs. So, so remember, we're talking about us because we're not Jews either. We were not inheritors by lineage of the promises of God. We were not grafted in through our physical birth to receive the promises and the covenants of God. We were outsiders, Paul says, aliens, strangers to the promise. And yet now, he says, we are fellow heirs. Up till this point, 
The way for a Gentile to become part of the people of God was to become Jewish. That would mean circumcision. That would mean following the dietary laws. That would mean following the ceremonial laws. That would mean following all of the civil laws of becoming a member of the nation of Israel. But Paul says that that's actually not how it works. In fact, the gospel invites any and all to come to Jesus as they are to become heirs of God. Now, now an heir, we know, is a child who is promised an inheritance. The mystery that is now revealed is that the Gentiles can also be children of God just as they are. There's nothing a Gentile needs to do except come to Christ. There there is nothing that a sinner needs to do except come to Christ. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to subscribe to a code of laws. We don't have to make ourselves clean. We don't have to do anything. We just believe the gospel and we are heirs. We are promised the inheritance of God. Second, Paul says, Gentiles are members of the same body. Now, remember from last week, Paul said that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. And Jesus has made one new man instead of the two, the Jew and the Gentile. He has now reconciled to himself in his body to make one new man. And that might sound kind of confusing, but remember what I said before People thought in order for a Gentile to be right with God, I had to become Jewish. And Jews would say to Gentiles, hey, in order to be right with God, you have to come over here, become Jewish, and then you can be right with God. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Both of you come to Christ. Both of you come to Christ. I used this illustration in my class on Thursday. I think it's really helpful when we think about How do we understand in our mind the relationship between Gentiles and Jews and the church? That is the people of God promised throughout Scripture, the one whom Christ died for, the bride that he gave his life to save. Now, we are in a pretty big building. And if you go downtown in Auburn, you will see a lot of construction. And one of the things that you'll notice when you see a building being built is something around that building that is required for that building to be built. What is it? You need scaffolding. You need a frame around this product that I, as a construction worker, can move around on and add to the facade or add to this window or put this piece together. But none of us would go around downtown Auburn or around any kind of construction zone and say, man, that's some good scaffolding. Check out that scaffolding. That's awesome. I'm so, I'm so excited for that building to not get finished because what I love to see is the scaffolding. Right? The scaffolding is necessary. It's vital. It's required. We have to have it, but it's serving a purpose outside of itself. It exists to build something better, something greater, something longer lasting. This scaffolding is not meant to exist forever. It's temporary. And when you and I read our Bibles, we need to look at the people of Israel in the Old Testament like scaffolding. God used 
Israel. He says in, uh, Paul says in Galatians, as a guardian. He used the law as a guardian until faith comes. And so the people of Israel are like scaffolding. This nation exists so that through God's work in their midst, something greater might be prepared. And the preparation was for the church, the one people of God throughout time and space who enter into Christ's uh, salvation by faith. And the good news of the gospel is those out in the world looking at this building being built and all the people on that scaffolding are invited to come in. Any who would come in can come. And the problem that Paul faces and the problem that many New Testament writers face and the problem that many Christians face when we talk to Jews who are Jewish in practice even today is they have missed that the point was not the scaffolding. It's the building. Right? They're looking at the cornerstone, who is Christ, and instead of rejoicing, they're stumbling over it. Because they're looking at the scaffolding going, but, but I, it's about the scaffolding, right? Like, that's what I've been a part of. That's what my family's been a part of. That's what generations of our people have been a part of. And God says, yes, the, the scaffolding was vitally important, but you were being used by me to create something eternally lasting and glorious. And whether Jew or Gentile, by faith in Jesus, we're all members of the same body. Third, Paul says, Gentiles are partakers of the same promise. So all the promises of God, Paul writes later in the New Testament, find their yes and amen in Christ. They are fully offered to the nations. Next week, we're going to hear from a lot of missionaries who are giving their lives and their time and their resources and their effort for the sake of reaching the nations with the gospel. And they can do that because this verse exists. Like they can go out in confidence, even if they never see fruit, because they know that the nations are going to receive the promises of God. And how are they going to receive it, Paul says? In Christ Jesus through the gospel. So here's the absolutely beautiful thing. What Paul says in Ephesians 3.6 has always been the case. Again, this is the mystery being revealed. It's not something being created. It's being revealed. It's just been veiled in the mystery. Now the whole world can know that in Christ, the promises made to Israel are actually made to all who will come in faith, believing that gospel and believing in Christ. Paul, remember, has been given a stewardship of grace regarding this mystery. The gospel is for all. And so that's where we turn now. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, Paul writes, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. All right, there's a lot here. So we've moved on from the mystery of Christ to the second section of our text this morning, which is the ministry of Paul. Now that he's told us what the mystery of Christ is, now we have a better understanding of, so what is it that Paul does? I mean, like we know that he's a missionary. We know that he's an apostle. We know that he plants churches and we can use all this kind of language, but day in and day out, like when we think about the apostle Paul, what's he doing? He's revealing the mystery. He's revealing the mystery. Paul is a minister, a worker, a servant of this gospel. And he was made a minister by the grace of God and the power of God, he says. So notice this. Paul didn't register. He didn't volunteer. He didn't sign up. It's not like Paul says, hmm, I'm looking around at all the things that I could do with my life. I guess I'm going to do this. No, he says, I was made a minister. It was given me by the working of his power. God's power and God's grace formed him into the Apostle Paul, who would be a minister of this gospel. And so here's what I mean. God is working in your life too. And he's forming you too. I don't know what he's forming you to be other than to say that you're also going to be a minister of this gospel. It may be across the world. It may be across the street. It may be in a Sunday school class. It may be in a, a daycare. It may be as a teacher. It may be as a lawyer. I don't know. But it is to say that God is at work in each one of you by his grace and by his power to form you into the kind of person that he intends you to be. This is the beauty of the doctrine of providence, that when your head hits the pillow tonight, you don't have to wonder, is God, is God what is God doing in my life? He's forming you. He's, he's encouraging you. He's empowering you. He's leading you and guiding you by his spirit so that you might grow in knowledge and experience and affection so that when the times come throughout your life where you are tested, not tempted, but tested to walk in faithfulness to Jesus, you might know with confidence, I have everything I need to say yes to God and no to sin, no to fear. So when the time comes where you have to decide what job am I going to take? Who am I going to marry? What school am I going to go to? That the controlling factor of all those things in your life is, what is God doing in my life to prepare me to be the minister of his gospel? How can I orient my life in such a way that will maximize the glory of God in my life and, and give me a platform to people who the world might think is unimportant, but whose value is radically different in the kingdom of God? So, like, so hear me, like, could it be that the missionary who goes and sees revival in a, in a foreign country is just as valuable in the weights of the kingdom of God as the stay-at-home mom? Of course. 
Like you, you and I don't know how to value those things. But we do know that God is at work in our lives. And we do know that if we walk in faith with him, he will lead us to exactly where he wants us to go. So Paul's ministry, as we'll see a little bit later, becomes our ministry. And he's humble, right? Look, look again at verse 8. He says, though I'm the very least of all the saints. You're like, okay, Paul, very least of all the saints. Like you're an apostle. You wrote a large portion of the New Testament. Least of all the saints. You might think that's silly, but here's the point. When we pursue God and seek his face and grow to know and love his word, we will be confronted with who we really are. God kills pride. He kills it. And he cultivates humility. So if I'm reading the Bible and I'm studying scripture and I'm learning about my faith and I'm learning about the doctrines that Christians from generations before have proclaimed and believed and held dear. And as I'm doing all of these things as a young believer growing in my faith, if I'm doing all these things and it's leading me to grow in my awareness of sins in other people, but not in the sins of my own heart, then I'm flying blind. I'm not reading the Bible as I ought. I'm missing something crucial. So let Paul's example of showing real humility serve as an encouragement and as a warning to all of us. That becoming more alert to other people's failure as a way to make yourself feel better is not a sign of spiritual maturity. But growing in your awareness for your own brokenness and your own need and Jesus' sufficiency to meet you exactly where you are, which will then lead you to see other people around you, not as enemies, but as other people filled with brokenness whom Jesus can meet exactly where they are, there's your sign of spiritual maturity. Because one of these things is going to lead towards arrogance, and one of these things is going to lead towards humility. And one of the scariest verses in the Bible is that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So Paul's ministry is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Again, part of the gospel, the revelation of God. We would never stumble upon this. It's unsearchable. You want, you're not going to find it. You can't Google it. I mean, you can, but you know what I mean. Paul continues to explain. He's going to bring to light for everyone the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So he is the proclaimer of the mystery, which is now revealed. His life is focused on the center of gravity. And his life is, I want to reveal the mystery of Christ to all who would hear. And not only that, but it's going to happen through the church, Paul says. Through the church. So Paul is not some maverick Christian running around by himself thinking, I have all that I need by myself to do all of this work. No, all of his work is rooted in the life of the church. And through the church, he says, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. 
Now, who is going to know the manifold wisdom of God through the church? Paul says something really weird. In verse 10, he says, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, when I think rulers and authorities in heavenly places, I think God. God's in heaven. He's a ruler. He has authority. Right? I think the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So, so who is he talking about? Because our existence, don't miss this, our existence as the people of God is the revelation of the mystery to whoever these rulers and authorities are. Like our existence, the fact that we're here, whatever the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, whoever they are, they're looking at us and going, oh, that's what God's been up to. That's what he's doing. Well, this verse is a bit cryptic, but Paul is talking here about angels. Don't miss this. He's talking about good angels and bad angels. You might think bad angels. Well, we usually call them demons. But demons are angels who have fallen, right? So we have good angels, angels in heaven, and we have bad angels, these demons who thwart God, who hate God, who want nothing to do with him. He uses language in chapter one to talk about angels in heaven. And he uses the same language in Ephesians chapter six to talk about demonic forces throughout the world. So the church, the people of God, Jews and Gentiles together in Christ is going to serve as a witness to the heavenly host and the demons of Satan, that God is restoring all things and he is victorious over all things. So you and I are the cause of worship and rejoicing among the angels in heaven. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but like there are angels in heaven worshiping Christ because you're here. And there are demons gnashing their teeth in anguish and fear, knowing that your existence is the promise that they really will be cast into the lake of fire, that their end is sure, that your existence is the seal that their judgment is coming. So all this, Paul writes, is according to plan, God's eternal purpose, realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, because what Jesus has done, we now have access to God. Anytime, any place, because of what Jesus has done for us, we can go to God with confidence and boldness. That's what Paul writes here in verse 12. Now I say this knowing that I am uh, preaching to the choir, so to speak, but if you're not a part of Wednesday night equipping groups and you have the capacity to be, let me just invite you once again to come see what we've been learning about prayer. Let me invite you once again, this, 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 this next week, we're going to be at First Baptist Opelika doing a rally for See You at the Pole. But, but moving forward from that, we will be finding out what a treasure the gift of prayer is, that we actually do have access to God and we can come to him in boldness, even when we're torn up in our frustration and our pain and our sin and our heartache and our sorrow and our doubts. 
even then we can come to God with boldness, knowing that he will receive us and we will find mercy and grace. Now, Paul ends this section with a fascinating verse. Look again at verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. We need to remember, where is Paul right now when he's writing this letter? He's in prison. Paul is in chains. And so he's saying that my sufferings, my imprisonment are for your glory. So don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. What does that even mean? Like if we're thinking normally, we might think that imprisonment would be pretty discouraging, right? Like if I heard that my friend was in prison, I'd be like, that stinks. Like that's terrible. Paul's like, nah, it's your glory. You're like, what? Paul seems to think that his chains should have the opposite effect on the people of God. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, just as Jesus was faithful and it led to hardship and persecution, so is Paul. And that faithfulness in Jesus and that faithfulness in Paul produces something in us who watch them in their faithfulness. So when we hear stories of our brothers and sisters following Jesus in hard places, even when it comes at great cost to them, or even the threat or the reality of persecution among them, we too are stirred up to faithfulness. And that faithfulness produces hope. And that hope leads us to glory. So let's, let's wrap all this up. The mystery of Christ has been revealed in the gospel. God has offered life and salvation through Christ to any who would come, Jew or Gentile. And the church is the witness to that mystery so as we follow Jesus, we are also following the apostles and the prophets, just like Paul before us. You and I have made, been made ministers of the gospel by the grace and the power of God. We have been made heirs of God. We have the unsearchable riches of Christ. We are partakers of the promise. And so the doors of the church are open wide to all who would come. And as ministers of that mystery, our lives are now centered around this idea. How can I bring more? How can I get more to come? Whether they're on the scaffolding or out in the world. How, how can I, through my life and through my actions and through my words, how can I show them that the unsearchable riches of Christ, the inheritance of God is free for them? If they would just come. Our lives are now wrapped up in inviting people in. So the call of this text is to join Paul in proclaiming the mystery of Christ. And before you feel any unnecessary weight from that task, before you feel for a moment that what Paul is saying is you need to figure this out and make it happen. Just look ahead to where we're going to be next week. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, 
he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Hear me as we hear Paul speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit. God does the work, and God supplies our need. And so if you hear what I've said this morning and you realize, man, I am very needy, I am very weak, I am not able to do all of these things, I am not able in my own cleverness, in my own capacity, join the club. That's the point. The point is that you would see you can't do this so that we might run to the one who can. And say, God, I need the grace of your spirit to fill me and to strengthen me and to empower me to do what you're asking me to do because I cannot do this. I cannot live this kind of life. I cannot live in this level of holiness. I cannot live with this kind of intentionality. I am weak and weary and tired and broken and sinful, and I just can't do it. And Paul says, yeah, I know you can't. So the next thing I'm going to do is pray. And that's what we're going to do now. Let's pray together.